So monofloral honey is defined in, in regulations actually as a as a honey that um, is made wholly or mainly from from the nectar of one plant. So the bees will be visiting one one type of plant. So you can imagine that if you put um, if you put a, a beehive in the middle of a field that's only growing one particular crop, let's say rape, mulsey um, rape, um, then you would end up with a monofloral rape honey um, because that's what the bees are bees are feeding on. Um, and we, we get that with things like manuka. So in New Zealand, there are plantations and places where people have actually deliberately grown manuka um, so that they can produce manuka honey. And they're they're very well managed. So you know the, the, the bee farmers will go out and they'll they'll clear the land of any other type of flower to make sure that their um, their final honey product is genuine manuka honey. You are listening to Farm to Fork, a series from The Standard Show. The podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is on food consumption. The opposite or the other side of that is a polyfloral honey. And most of the most of the honey that we eat is polyfloral, so there's absolutely nothing nothing wrong with that at all. But that, that tends to be from a mixture of different plant sources. So that's where the bees have had the opportunity to forage on many different types of flower um, and the, the nectar from those different flowers come together into one product. So you, you can end up with something called a multifloral manuka honey, for example. Um, but that that's a blend of lots of different nectar types, including manuka. Um, so, you know, what we're trying to do with the, the standards um, aspect of the manuka um, is to try and define very clearly that what a monofloral manuka honey looks like. And that, that involves managing the the bee colony is probably a little bit more carefully than, than for some of the um, lower value products. Where are we, Cindy Parakil? Well, Matthew Charles, we're here again in our usual place for this series at the To Love Tea and Coffee House in London's Battersea, just down the road from Clapham Junction. And we're having our tea and coffee and cake. Yes, we are. And this time I've gone for a rather lovely looking Bakewell tart. What have you gone for, Cindy? Well, I have gone for a date slice. That does look good. Well, we are out having tea and coffee and cake and basing ourselves here again at the To Love Tea and Coffee House because this is Farm to Fork, our series on the relationship between standards and food. Now, in this series, our menu of episodes is loosely following the food cycle of food innovation, production, packaging, distribution, consumption, and waste management, and featuring some of the key standards involved in each of them. And in this episode, we are looking at food consumption. But actually, we need to come clean and fess up, don't we, Matthew? We do. Now, that is the genuine sound in the background there of a slice of Clapham Battersea Cafe culture and the To Love Tea and Coffee House, but we're not actually there, are we, Cindy? Sadly not. (laughs) We had planned to be having tea and cake face-to-face in our usual location for this series, but unfortunately, reasons means that it's not possible. But I am actually having, I have actually got a piece of cake, and Cindy, you do have a piece of cake in front of you there, don't you? Exactly. A date cake. (laughs) And where are you, in fact, then, Cindy? I'm I'm at home in West London. <laughs> Where are you? Were <laughs> I'm at home, but it's South East London. Sweet. Yes, sweet, because we are genuinely having cake, and in this episode, covering out something else that's also sweet, and that is honey. Mm-hmm. Playing us in at the top of the episode was Adrian Charlton, principal scientist from the organisation Ferrous Science. 
I spoke to Adrian about some of the issues around the testing of food and the authenticity of food, and in particular for honey, and even more particular, Manuka honey, and a new standard being developed for it. Yes, indeed. A PAS, in fact. Now, throughout the Farm to Fork series and this episode, we are, of course, exploring the role of standards. So before we hear Matthew's conversation with Adrian, here's Sarah Walton from BSI to tell us more about the general relationship between standards and food consumption. Hi, my name is Sarah Walton and I'm the food sector lead at BSI. For people to truly enjoy what they're eating and drinking, taste is a key consideration. But so is the ability to trust that it's made of what the, act, the label actually says it's made of, and that it's made ethically and with as little of an environmental impact as possible. With food fraud in the headlines and labelling becoming more confusing than helpful, sceptical consumers might doubt what they find on the shelves or online. And this is where standards come in. Standards reassure consumers and organisations about the specific characteristic of a product. They can ensure that the product is produced in compliance with key aspects of a food, from purity and origin to environmental and fair production practices. All of these factors directly affect consumer buying decisions and ultimately standards help food sector organisations to improve consumers' trust in their products. So that's why for all parts of the food cycle, including consumption, standards provide a way for everyone to agree what good looks like. Now, here on The Standard Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. So Adrian Charlton is Principal Scientist at Ferris Science, an international food research and testing organisation. He's also a standards maker, a member of ISO Technical Committee 34, Subcommittee 19, responsible for the standardisation of bee products. In this first slice of my conversation with Adrian, I started by asking him to tell me more about ferro science and the role it plays in food safety. Ferro Science is a, an organisation that's based in um, the north of England. We're, we're based just outside York. Um, we've um, been around for over 100 years, um, originally set up at various different laboratory sites across the UK, um, looking into things such as plants, pests and diseases. Um, but we've, we were brought together as a, a unified organisation in about 1991, um, where all the labs were brought together in this, this laboratory complex in, in York. And that included um, people who were working on food science, which is where I, I sit within the organisation, within the food programme. Um, we also have a programme that works um, on environmental safety and, um, and stewardship and, and the, the um, plant group as well, which, which continues that 100-year-long work on plant pathology. Um, we also have a group within the organisation that looks at something called proficiency testing, which is working out how well um, other organisations are performing in terms of their testing and monitoring for, for risks in the, um, in the food chain. So Ferro's an organisation is designed to look at um, the safety of the food chain from, from farm to fork, really, um, you know, taking the, the risks that might come through um, contaminated soil and, and looking at that right through to, to food production and what we actually put on our plates. But then ultimately as well, looking at the waste that we generate from um, overproducing food 
or um, and how we dispose dispose of that um, with the packaging material as well, that sort of thing, um, and how that has a, an impact on the environment. I will come back to the um, the role that ferroscience plays within within food safety. You mentioned there about the you know the food that the, the food that arrives on our plates, but your involvement in standards. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we've been working with BSI as an organisation. Fair, we've been working with BSI for for the last five or six years to look at um, an opportunity um, that we recognise within the food sector to provide an assurance program um, for food. And the, the, this is um, it's very diverse in, in its nature and, and the, the way that it might operate. Um, but one of the things that we've had an eye on is is what will what will the UK need to do once we've we've um, had to establish our own own rules um, post post being a member of the European Union. Um, and one, one of the, the things that we will lose by not being in the European Union is, is access to some of the protection mechanisms for, for food, things such as um, PDO and PGI, which are protected denomination of origin, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, that they're markers to say that a, a product is where it, it, it comes from, and that, that's a European system. So we've, we've been looking at how we can use standards to, to quality assure British products um, but also that that's broadened out to look at how we can make sure that safety standards are maintained and, on, in terms of the, the food that we eat in this UK, whether it's whether it's produced in the UK or whether it's um, it, whether it's imported. So we've been working internationally as well and um, you know, working with BSI and, and having that big international footprint is really helping us to um, to have the conversations that we need to have, whether that be with. Um, the regulators and, and people within government who, whose responsibility it is to make sure that we've got the safe, safe food chain um, or whether it's the producers and the retailers who are, who are selling food and, and um, have the traceability right back to the, the products that um, come out of the ground or, or you know, graze on our, our grasslands. So um, the, the standard side of it is to, is to provide people with assurance, really, that the food that we're eating is of a high standard, be that from an animal welfare point of view, a food safety point of view, um, move, moving forwards and that issue of food safety then generally adrian you know what's the role of ferrous science in ensuring this safety and i mean alongside that you know who else is involved in the uk and I'm, i suppose i'm keen to know how it all sort of fits together so ferrous um it's one of the national reference laboratories in the uk and um the national Re- reference laboratory capability is, is is shared between a number of organizations but we we have um, that responsibility for a lot of the key areas around food, and particularly the, the, the safety of food. Um, and what that that means, that NRL role, I mean, means that we're responsible for for holding together um, the resilience of the UK to um, to any threats that come through from the food chain, um, and particularly in, in respect to the things that we we have the NRL status for. So that that will be things such as pesticides and um, contaminants in general, and things such as heavy metals, that, that sort of thing, which again talk about it in a bit more detail in a second, but that, that infrastructure that I'm talking about will we'll, we'll link into um, some of the, the smaller laboratories. Maybe it's the public analyst laboratories that operate um, regionally on behalf of the trading standards bodies. So if, if there's a problem in a particular area, then testing usually is done locally. Um, and that, that's organised ultimately by the Food Standards Agency. So it, it links together as a network. We, we provide the technical expertise into that really to make sure that methods of analysis um, the right standard, um, you know, that people are, are trained to the right level and that if anything new is coming through, new technologies are coming through or any new methods that we might have developed at Ferro, that there is a natural way of rolling those out into the into the uh, public analyst community. 
So, Adrian, we talk there generally around the sort of food safety issues, uh, the sort of, sort of food safety infrastructure generally. But we've asked you onto the Standard Show to talk about honey in particular. So tell me first about your relationship with honey. I, I um, work fairly um, fairly closely with the UK honey industry and, and with the regulators who look after honey. Honey is an unusual product because it's, um, it's, a, it's a product of animal origin. So... Um, you know, some of the considerations that we have are, are similar to what you would have for, for cows and for, for sheep, um, you know, in as much as um, we have to monitor honey for things like antibiotics um, because bees get diseases. So, you know, occasionally there's a need to, to use antibiotics to treat treat the um, colonies to make sure that they, the bees survive. Um, and we, we want to make sure that those sorts of, of um, chemicals don't get into, into honey. So the, the link between Ferro, what Ferro do and and the, the honey world is, is around safety testing for the things like veterinary medicines, um, antibiotics I've mentioned, but also other things as well. We want to make sure that people aren't using artificial stimulants or, or anything like that to, to um, improve the, the productivity. You know, the honey is seen very much as a natural product. Um, and also you can you can inadvertently introduce things like pesticides into, into honey. You know, the bees forage on, on land where um, you know, potentially spraying's been happening for, for crops and for valid reasons, but you, you certainly don't want those pesticides ending up in the in the honey. So we we monitor for those as well. There's also um, potentially a risk if the, the hives are in the wrong place, then um, you can get contamination um, through through the environment. So you know, contaminated drinking water if, if um, the hive's next to a polluted lake, for example, and the bees are drinking out of that lake, or um, if if there's just heavy traffic in the area and there might be um, pollutant pollution from lead or whatever else it might be. Um, so you have to be careful where you position the hives, and we, and we check for that sort of thing. We check for heavy metals in in honey as well. So we, we we make sure that it's it's a product that's fit for purpose. And I think again, because we've we've got less control over honey than perhaps some some other things. You now, if you you're growing a crop in the ground, you you pretty much know what the environment is. Um, you know, for, for bees, we can manage the the environment to some extent around the beehive. Um, but we can't control all of the variables. So we do have to test honey fairly rigorously to make sure that there, there are no, no issues with it. I was kind the, of thinking about that because many, many people might think that honey is a relatively you know, benign product. You talk there about obviously a natural product. But you know, what, are, what are the particular food safety issues then regarding honey? And, sh- and why should we care about them, I suppose? But if, if we look internationally, I mean, we're a UK-based lab, but we do, we do work internationally. Um, the, the, there are issues with some of the um, toxins that come out of plants um, that the bees forage on. So I guess if you consider um, that bees are actually wild, and although we're, we're farming them, they are left to roam um, you know, over the, the, their natural range. Um, so they can, they can actually get onto flowers that perhaps we don't want them to, and that can introduce toxins in, into the honey. Um, so internationally, there, there's um, there's problems with a, a compound called tootin in New Zealand, um, where this, this the particular flower produces this toxin, and, and the toxin gets into the honey potentially um, if the bees go and uh, forage on it. In, in this country, we have problems um, with alkaloids getting into honey from from ragwort if um, if the bees are foraging on on wildflowers and uh, that sort of thing. So um, we have we have to be fairly careful with it and it's, it's because you know there are very few um truly sort of wild products and, and honey can be considered to be that if um you know if it's not in a, a managed apiary so we've got um we've got concerns over how how you know the the bees are managed and that that's monitored very closely as well and that's that's out of the same site that we're in 
um, in York, there's something called the National Bee Unit, where we have a, a group of bee inspectors who go out and make sure that beekeepers are doing the right thing, you know, that, that if there is any ragwort in the local area, that that gets spotted and removed, and that um, they have declared all the um, veterinary medicines that they've used for treating the bees. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a highly regulated process. I just wonder, Agent, as you're talking there, you know, how how global is the market for honey? You know, is it, is it a truly international market? It, it is. And um, it's quite interesting when you get into the details, because um, most, most countries consume honey. It's a, it's a product that you'll find in almost every country. Um, and that there's a lot of trading goes on between countries because it's a seasonal product. Then at different times of year, you can source honey from different different parts of the world. And there's some countries that, that trade huge amounts of honey. We, we, we import most of our honey in the UK from China, for example. Um, and that's that's blended with, with honeys from different parts of the world. So the blending process is interesting because you know, we, we, we trade with many different countries to produce the um, the, the blended products that we, we generally eat in this country. Um, and they're blended for good reasons, in much the same way as, as as a whiskey might be blended to give it a particular colour or flavour. That that's why the why honey's blended to to give it the right properties. You know, the viscosity can be important. Um, but the, the, back to the question about the market size, it, it is a it's a multi million pound industry globally with um, some some key operators. Um, India is a big producer of honey. Um, we see quite a lot of in Europe, in and around Europe. Turkey's a, a big player in the in the honey space as well. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, it truly is a, a commodity market for honey as much as anything. But it has to be managed. It's, it's very different because it has to be managed almost like a cottage industry because of the way that it's produced. Um, so it's, it's, it's both extremes. It's a global business that's managed um, you know, very, very closely. I just wondering as you were, you were talking earlier about some of the, the sort of food safety challenges there in terms of pesticides and things like that. You know what what is implication does that have then for for honey being traded across borders? So this is one of the key key issues. One well now we've um, moved to a phase where we're looking at um, signing up to trade deals and and also you know, just facilitating trade with countries that we might not have traded with before for all food, not just honey. Um, we need to make sure that that, that food. Um, that's imported into the UK meets the safety standards that we would expect in the UK. Um, and we have found issues where um, safety standards are not as high in, in, in countries that are wanting to export products into the UK. Um, we, we, it's not necessarily that we've found pesticides and heavy metals and, and um, veterinary medicines and that sort of thing, or even natural toxins like tutin. We've, we've not necessarily found them, but if, if they're not being monitored and the, the infrastructure isn't in place in those countries, then there's a huge risk to the UK by accepting imports from countries that we've not traditionally got a trading relationship with. So part of the process that we need to go through when we start agreeing to, to, to accept food from um, countries that we haven't previously had a, a big um, trading relationship with is to, to make sure that their infrastructure mirrors ours to, to a certain extent or that we're able to to, to monitor um, the food as it comes into to the UK. And what generally happens is that is the, both things are, are in place. So Pera will test food that's coming in from outside of the UK um, and, and check periodically that, that that food is of a certain standard. And that's, that's managed through organisations like DEFRA and the Food Standards Agency in the UK. Um, but also we, would, we will encourage and hope and, and, and offer advice to, to countries wanting to bring products over to the UK um, over what the level of uh, testing is that, that they, they need to do and, and upskill them if needs be as well. You know, there's occasion that we've had to go and, and train. I remember back to when we were first um, 
allowed various countries to come into the EU, Czech Republic and, and um, Cyprus were examples. We, we went over there to do some training. I spent a couple of weeks out there showing them how to do analysis on particular products. And um, you know, that, that's something that we need to do to make sure that we can maintain these supply chains um, reliably and safely. Food for thought. China is by far and away the biggest producer of honey in the world, accounting for 28% of the world's honey, followed by Turkey at 6% and Iran at 5%. China also tops the charts in terms of total consumption of honey. But in terms of consumption as measured by head of population, well, that's a different story. For this, the winner is the Central African Republic, followed by New Zealand, and Slovenia. Now, in this second slice of my conversation with Adrian Charlton, I started by asking him about Manuka honey. Manuka honey is a little bit of a pet project of mine. It's um, another one with a big market, and um, the, the main market is it, it's um, listed as a, uh, a herbal medicine in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. So it's got a big market in China. Manuka honey. It's produced in New Zealand, um, and that's. Um, pretty much the, the only place that can produce Manuka honey from Leptospernum scoparium, which is the, the plant that produces it. It's something called a monofloral honey. So it's a, a honey where the, the nectar comes, um, the term is wholly or mainly, from, from, from one particular plant. And that plant's a Manuka bush, which is called Leptospernum scoparium, as I said. Um, the healing properties that it's purported to have, and this has never been proved scientifically, but it, it's... Um, one of those um, folklore things. It's, it's got. We know that it's got antimicrobial properties. We've we've tested that in the in the lab quite extensively, um, and that's then been extrapolated to to health benefits if you if you eat manuka honey. So it's found a it's found a premium market. That, that's um, where it stands out from pretty much any other honey. Um, you can pay over a thousand pounds for a jar of manuka honey. Um, it has a it has very much a cult following. Um, in as much as um, people who who believe in the healing properties of manuka honey. We'll, we'll pay you know big dollar for um, for the product so that's generated a, a fairly sizable market in terms of the um, the value of the product so tell me a bit more, a bit more then Adrian you mentioned there's sort of monofloral tell me a bit more about that so monofloral honey is defined in, in regulations actually as a as a honey that um, is made wholly or mainly from from the nectar of one plant so the bees will be visiting one one type of plant so you can imagine that if you put um, if you put a beehive in the middle of a field that's only growing one particular crop, let's say rape, um, all see rape, um, then you would end up with a monofloral rape honey um, because that's what the bees are, bees are feeding on. Um, and we, we get that with things like manuka. So in New Zealand, there are plantations and places where people have actually deliberately grown manuka um, so that they can produce manuka honey. And they're, they're very well managed. So you know, the, the, the bee farmers will go out and they'll, they'll clear the land of any other type of flower to make sure that they're um, their final honey product is genuine manuka honey. The, the, oh, I guess the, the opposite or the other side of that is a polyfloral honey. And most of the most of the honey that we eat is polyfloral, so there's absolutely nothing nothing wrong with that at all. But that that tends to be from a mixture of different plant sources. So that's where the bees have had the opportunity to forage on many different types of flower, um, and the, the nectar from those different flowers come together into one product. So you, you can end up with something called a multifloral manuka honey, for example. Um, but that, that's a blend of lots of different nectar types, including manuka. Um, so, you know, what we're trying to do with the, the standards um, aspect of the manuka um, is to try and define very clearly that what a monofloral manuka honey looks like. And that, that involves managing the, 
the bee colonies probably a little bit more carefully than than for some of the um, lower value products. And now we've actually got now a PAS being developed around Manuka honey in particular. Well, as with any, anything that um, attracts a premium price, then um, other people try to cash in. And um, we, we found that there's been issues over the years with um, products being sold that are, that are not Manuka honey or only contain very small amounts of Manuka honey. And they're not genuinely monofloral products, as I, as I described. Manuka should come from Leptospidum scoparium. Um, and there are products that are, that are not not from that plant, um, wholly or mainly. And so this, this PAS, um, the, the PAS, the PAS sets out to define what manuka only is in a, in a way that can be measured, um, and that incorporates the, the regulations that are already in place in New Zealand. But it goes a bit further than that in the, establishing a standard for the product and um, and the, the safety aspects behind that are, are, are key. Um, but it's mainly around authenticity. You know, have people blended the um, a small amount of manuka with a, a different honey? Um, but we, we, we talk about how you can test for that and uh, use different scientific technologies to look at things like isotopes, but also biochemical markers that come out of the nectar. We, we can measure those and, and interpret whether we think a, a jar of honey is genuinely manuka. And all this is written into the into the standards. So um, it's a way that um, to take the, the PAS, a retailer, for example, who maybe was going to spend thousands of pounds, hundreds of thousands of pounds on a shipment of manuka honey, um, they, they could take that document and then say, look, does your product adhere to this standard? Um, and can you provide with, with the evidence to prove that? And um, it's, it's a way to give confidence um, that, that you're not buying a, a, a product that isn't what you, what you think it is. And that ultimately passes down to the consumer as well. So um, you know, whilst it's not a, a consumer-friendly thing to put on the outside of a jar of honey, I don't think at the moment, um, it's, it's an assurance thing that the, the, allows the industry to work in a way that protects the consumer. And what's your, been your particular, your personal involvement in the development of this particular standard, Adrian? So I'm, again, Manuka has been a, a, an interest of mine for a while. So I'm, I'm the lead technical person. Um, so I'm the technical author is a, is a term that's used. Um, and that in, involves coordinating a, a few few people who are experts in the area um, to get the, the PAS written. Um, and we're, we're about halfway through that process at the moment. Um, and yeah, well, we're hoping to have um, everything completed within the next few months or so. And um, yeah, that, that will be a, a good statement that um, the industry is coordinated around uh, around this standard because that's, that's a key thing. It's, it's not just one person's opinion. So whilst I'm the technical author, this goes out to consultation um, gives the opportunity for the market to to um, to have their opinion, and then ultimately the, the document is agreed across the the industry. So you have an agreed standard um, that people um, will will find um, that they can operate to, and and will elect into operate into. I'm just thinking, sort of fast forwarding a couple of two or three years, thinking about this this standard being used throughout the industry. What what change or what impact do you think it will it will have for for the industry itself, but also for for consumers and retailers? I think for um, for consumers, ultimately, it will give you confidence. I think there's been a lot of bad publicity, and, and particularly um, some, there are certain newspapers that have enjoyed, I think, um, publishing articles suggesting that manuka honey has been adulterated in some way. And I think that that probably um, you know, puts people off sometimes, particularly with the high price point. Um, but if people have been you know, tempted to buy the product and and the bad publicity has put them off, then th- this standard will make a clear statement um, that the industry is operating to a, a transparent and open standard. Um, and that should give consumers confidence that the products that they're buying 
um, are, are genuine. Um, the industry, I think, probably needs to promote the fact that they've developed this standard and that they've got everything together. You know, there, there is a very strong industry body for uh, Manuka Honey called um, UMFHA in New Zealand, and they, they, they're, the, um, they're the sponsor of the, of the PAS, so they're coordinating everybody together um, to make sure that, um, that the key industry operators um, are involved. But they, they will also be heavily involved with, with BSI and, and with BORA. Um, and getting the message out there that this standard has been developed and it's actually been adopted as well. Adrian, I asked you at the beginning about, about Ferrer's science's involvement in standards and its work. You, you told me about your work with its work with BSI, but what's been your own personal standards journey? You know, how and when did it start for you and where are you now? Yeah, so the Ferrer is a, it's part, was part of DEFRA. Um, we're now still partly owned by DEFRA. So when I, I first started with working at Ferrer, which was about 25 years ago now, um, we, we were always working around standards, but it, it was around regulatory standards. Um, and so we, we've been working with DEFRA and the Food Standards Agency for, for a long time to look at um, whether legislation was, was right. And um, our, our job in that, my personal job in that, was to uh, manage the, the research and development work um, to, to provide evidence to government so that policymakers could, could make well-informed decisions. Um, and that that's really moved on and progressed because we, we've all, always recognised that um, there's a role for the, the private sector to be able to self-regulate. Um, and that the, finding that mechanism for food has been quite difficult um, because there's additional costs involved and all of that sort of thing. Um, so my, my journey has really been trying to take the message that, that we, we get from core government. You know, we need to need to maintain high food standards. We need to maintain high animal welfare standards and try and find a way that we can work with industry to to achieve that in a way that's you know affordable and fit for purpose, and that that's resulted in the, the work that we're doing with with BSI at the moment um, to try and develop standards for industry um, that carry the messages that we we want as a society. So um, the, those bigger picture things, you know, we we all want higher animal welfare standards. Um, you know, to, to be maintained and, and how can we assure that that's the case if we're importing meat from Australia or from New Zealand or from wherever else um, but we can do that by looking at the regulations but we can't we can't impose regulations on other countries what we can do is ask other countries to stick to standards that we've developed um, and that so that's that's taking the best practice out of the regulatory frameworks building that into a, an elected standard and getting people to sign up to that so that that's my journey is from the, the government side through to trying to get some kind of commercial implementation of these standards within the food sector. So Asia, I've got I've got to ask since we've oh. talked about uh, we've talked about honey a lot and manuka honey manuka honey in particular. Do you actually uh, do you eat honey yourself? I do. I, I, I even um, eat manuka honey. Um, I'm not telling you whether I pay for it or not, but. Um... <laughs> Are you one of those people that paid a thousand pounds for a jar? <laughs> I, I, well, do you know I'm from Yorkshire, so that, that's highly unlikely. <laughs> and are you a, are you a honey and tea or honey on toast? How do you how do you take your honey? So I, I would I would generally have um, manuka honey if I've got a cold or a sore throat, and um, but that, that I, I do believe that um, there's some benefit for any type of honey, not just manuka for, for when you feel a little bit under the weather because it's got the right kind of properties to. to soothe the sore throat um but i, I like it we, we put it in things like smoothies so i'll blend it together with some fruit and some yogurt and that kind of thing we've got children they they tend to enjoy it like that my daughter has it on toast um yeah we, we did we do get quite through quite a lot of honey in our house so i think it's um well the general feeling is that it's better for you than, than refined sugar and the, the children like 
like sweet things, so we tend trying to encourage them to eat um, eat honey if that's um, that's what they need. A nice alternative, I, I suppose. As a final thought, um, runny honey or set honey? What, what's <laughs> your view on that? Oh, that's a whole whole contentious area. Um, so, in the UK, I think um, we've we've accepted runny honey, um, it, but that, that's one product that isn't. Um, isn't quite as global as, as the, the set honeys that we see internationally. So um, we, we generally would have, um, we would probably have both actually, depending on what we were using it for. Um, runny honey, would we would put on breakfast cereals and that kind of thing. And then the set honey, um, you know, a bit of a treat if we were having it on, on toast and that sort of thing. So Cindy Power, <laughs> runny honey or set honey for you? Runny honey, 100%. <laughs> I'm Ronnie Honey as well, although I have some in the cupboard upstairs and it after a sort of couple of weeks it became it always becomes sort of set honey. Really? I don't know what's going on there. Yeah. That's, Sam for you? No. Um I ha- my my honey is and consistently stays runny. <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. No, it does not um, crystallize. So yeah. Very good. And Manuka honey? Ever tried yes, that? Yes, I love Manuka honey. How about yeah? you? Yeah, okay. You're, you're com- I'm, not, I don't, I'm not sure if I've ever tried it, but obviously after recording this episode, I think I will definitely have to go and try you it. Must. Although I'm not going to pay £1,000 a jar, as Adrian was mentioning. Yeah. Now, Cindy, we should say thank you to Adrian Charlton. We should. And we should also say thank you to Sarah Walton from BSI too. And if you can't get enough of honey, bees and standards, then check out episode 68 of the podcast, which we did for World Bee Day. Great buzz for that episode. Great buzz. (laughs) So that's food consumption. And in the final episode in this series, we'll be looking at food waste management. So, Matthew, we should probably start clearing up and getting ready for that then. (laughs) Very good. Now, (laughs) I'm going to tuck in to my... um, my bakerwell tart and you um, what are you having again my date hmm? slice it's oh, really very good, good actually mm-hmm. very good very good you have been listening to farm to fork the relationship between standards and food a series from the standard show subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts you just heard a stripped media production 